0: Boop. Mm. And that was a local indie band called After the Crash, performing White Rabbit, a most appropriate song for this particular show. Over the last few weeks, I have received several inquiries about psychotropic plants, such as ayahuasca, and I decided to do a show on it and bring the scientific and medical facts about it so that people interested would be well-educated in the topic. What you're about to hear is a portion of a uh, documentary uh, called The Spirit Molecule that is probably one of the best uh, sources of information uh, ever assembled on the topic. You can uh, learn more about The Spirit Molecule uh, by going to their website www.spiritmolecule.com Personally, I do not have any experience with ayahuasca. There are tens of thousands of people that do have experience. And one of them is a good friend of mine, James Riverstone. He is a uh, Peruvian shaman. He has used this substance, and he could probably tell us a lot more about it. And I'm going to see if I can get him on the show here in the near future so we can discuss that and many other shamanic topics with him. Until then, enjoy the show. And remember to never use a psychotropic, especially like ayahuasca, without the supervision of uh, someone skilled in its use, or without the supervision of a shaman by your side.
1: I saw the city in the deep, deep distance that was dark green and all these lights flickering and clouds flowing over it, and this all started after tremendous geometric patterns that are incredibly rapid, that cannot describe to anybody. They're so fast, after those had slowed down, I saw this city in the deep distance. Um, so I was sort of watching that, and then this ball of light goes right past me, right in front of me, like, what was that? It didn't scare me, except it was so close. After that, I started looking around. It's like you're in this place, and you're going, why am I in this place? And then I noticed that there is this woman off to my right with a... Uh, real long nose, she had green skin. She was turning this dial and I realized she was turning the volume of lights up and down on the city in the distance. And as soon as I looked at her, she noticed I was watching her. And she said, so what else do you want? I said, "Uh, what else do you have?
2: story of DMT, or dimethyltryptamine, a simple compound found throughout nature which has profound effects on human consciousness.
3: One of the things besides what it does, one of the things about DMT that, uh, that always fascinated me was the fact that it's such a simple molecule. DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine,
4: NN-dimethyltryptamine. If you actually look at the ring structure of DMT itself, you only have really four positions that you can attach things to. So you can make diethyl or dipropyl. There are some other types of carbon chains you can attach to that end that do give you compounds that have
3: activity, but very different from DMT. It biosynthetically, it's two steps from tryptophan. Right, Uh, two trivial enzymatic steps from tryptophan. Well, tryptophan is an amino acid, of course, and it's everywhere. So all organisms have tryptophan, and all organisms have the two key enzymes that lead to the synthesis of DMT. And these enzymes are very ancient enzymes. They're all over the place. They're, again, part of basic metabolism. So theoretically, anything
5: could synthesize DMT. DMT is uh, astonishingly widely available in plants and animals all, all around the world, but so far nobody really knows why it's there or what its, or what its function is.
1: That's the $64 billion question, <laughs> is why is DMT in our bodies? Why is it in plants and all sorts of mammals? What is the role it plays in humans?
3: The conventional new wisdom 30, 40 years ago was that these things had no real function. They were just sort of physiological noise. But that's a very naive understanding. And what we now understand is that these secondary compounds are, in a sense, the language of plants. These are messenger molecules. This is what plants use to mediate their relationships with other organisms
6: in the environment. Why is it that human beings' central nervous system are wired to receive this experience? Must be that, uh, you know, there's important information to be
5: learned. So I don't think it's universally present in nature by accident. It has a real function. We have co-evolved with these plants. There's a purpose in them and a meaning to it.
7: So it really fits in with the notion that DMT may be the common molecular language, resonant language among all living beings on this planet, and maybe others as well. I can't think of a more powerful tool to explore the whole question of what is consciousness.
8: These uh, substances are tools that can be used to expand awareness in all areas of life and apply that expanded awareness in, uh, for the betterment of people's lives and their communities, their families and our society. The good news is that there's a growing number of Westerners and and actually intellectuals, scientists, artists, movers and shakers, filmmakers and so on, who realize that uh, this stuff is all too interesting just to go on uh, keeping it swept under the rug. And meanwhile, the Inquisition was a long time ago, the birth of rationalism was a long time ago. At this point, there's no good reason, apart from bad habit, to keep up these, these barriers. With the
2: help of two concepts that are traditionally opposed, science and spirituality, we humbly reintroduce psychedelics back into the cultural dialogue.
1: DMT, the spirit molecule, you know, it's a conundrum, it's a paradox. What uh, the spirit is the inner world. Uh, The molecule is the external world. So the psychedelics are entheogens uh, take us from the science to the spirit.
9: I was drawn to the pineal gland, which is a very small organ in uh, the center of the brain, which uh, has always been an object of interest and even veneration for a lot of esoteric physiological disciplines. I thought, you know, it wasn't totally crazy to presume a pineal uh, site of origin of DMT. Um, which, you know, fit in nicely with my theory that the pineal was somehow involved in actually occurring mystical states.
5: This hypothesis proposes that the pineal gland, at certain times, when it's under specific uh, stress or stimulation, it releases a significant amount of this uh, hormone, DMT, and it's that hormone that facilitates the entering and exiting of the soul in the body. This is what the Jewish sage mystics have been describing in a coded language for literally thousands of years.
9: Through meditation, through fasting, chanting, any number of techniques, Uh, there might be um, a burst of endogenous DMT that was correlated with mystical and near-death experiences. And I had this theory that um, there was a big similarity between psychedelics and uh, experiences that were possible with a lot of meditation. Um, And that was one of the original findings uh, that led me to start looking for a spirit molecule, for a, a, a compound in the brain that elicited mystical experience.
10: I think there may be a role for DMT in explaining any number of hallucinatory phenomena that man has experienced throughout his history. Creativity, imagination, dream states, changes that occur due to isolation, trauma, starvation, uh, all of which produce hallucinatory phenomena. These hallucinatory phenomena are explainable by the presence of compounds known to produce hallucinations. And the only compounds that we know of that are capable of doing this are the class of compounds known as hallucinogens.
11: When thinking about spiritual states, I think endogenous hallucinogenic compounds and molecules that the brain can potentially release are probably very relevant to this topic, because on one hand, they may really help us to elucidate what is the neurochemical mechanism of these experiences. I mean, if we can say that there is a release of endogenous opiates, or we can say that there's a release of dopamine or something like that, and we can measure that release, and we can see where in the brain those different molecules go, what receptors they activate or deactivate, and hence we can really learn a lot more about what these experiences are because it really can allow us to match up these experiences that people have with hallucinogens as well as understanding where they are related in the context of the brain's receptors and, and the different parts of the brain that can may or may not become active.
9: One of the other interesting things about the pharmacology of DMT is that it's actively transported into the brain. And so you have to wonder about the role of DMT in just everyday normal perceptual, you know, um, activity. You know, um, too much DMT and things become very psychedelic or, you know, not enough, uh, you know, DMT in the brain can make things dull and flat and grey
12: there's something that for me makes sense about DMT you called it the spirit molecule it might almost be called you know the reality molecule philosophically it makes sense that something that would be so fundamental to um, the way we perceive reality would be imbued out there in reality there was a
13: sense around it that there was something special that, that it wasn't Uh, like anything else, there wasn't like other uh, psychedelics. Its intensity and speed was such that it really produced a different kind of uh, response. I mean, I remember almost getting the sense that it was kind of like a a psychedelic bungee jump, that there was a kind of raw leap into this rapidly changing environment that was very different than the more gradual approaches uh, of other psychedelics.
14: Smoke DMT is sort of like the drive-by shooting of psychedelics. (laughs) You're in one place, bang, you're in another place, and then bang, you're back down. So it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for that narrative of who am I, what am I doing here, why am I in this space, what am I learning? It's almost like there was too much information to process in that few-minute span to integrate once you drop back down.
10: Dimethyltryptamine, when it is administered, has a very rapid onset and a very short duration of action. This is because it's very rapidly broken down by the body so that it can be cleared.
4: DMT is rapidly degraded by an enzyme in the liver called monoamine oxidase, or MAO. That's the reason it's not active when you take it by mouth. Whereas psilocybin, when you take it by mouth, it's not broken down by monomial oxidase very quickly at all. So it, it gets through the liver and passes on into the bloodstream and into the brain.
9: Yeah, I'm very interested in ayahuasca. When I began my studies in the early 1990s, ayahuasca was just starting to make inroads into the West, but it's obviously become a lot more popular in the last 10, 15 years. And the visionary ingredient in ayahuasca is DMT. Through some amazing feat of pre-literate chemistry, the Amazonian natives stumbled upon, or combined, whatever. um, I don't know how they did it, but they found that one plant contains DMT and one plant contains an enzyme inhibitor. Combine them, you can drink DMT, and it's orally active. So it starts working in a half hour, lasts for three or four hours and um, you can, you know, maneuver a lot more comfortably within that state than you can when you're just smoking it or injecting it.
14: Orally active ayahuasca tends to pick you up and gently carry you into the space and hug you and embrace you and clean you and show you all sorts of mystical visions and then it very gently brings you back down like you're floating on a feather back to the ground.
15: As valuable as my DMT experiences have been, I um, feel that there's a lot more enduring value really in this uh, folk technology which stretches it out and makes it a navigable space. Our whole Western, you know, European-derived tradition of distilling alcohols and isolating chemicals and making everything stronger and taking it out of nature and putting it into the biggest punch that we can, I don't think that generally that's the most useful way. I think there's a reason that cultures have uh, learned to turn a five-minute experience into a five-hour experience. It seems to me that ayahuasca has had a plan and that it's reached out into the world and brought DMT into many, many thousands of lives and a much bigger uh, canvas than it had reached for the last 10,000 or however many years. And it's done it very rapidly and it's done it with form to go with it.
5: And ayahuasca is much harder for the power structures that we have now, it's much harder for them to put down because it has been part of a legitimate religious and spiritual practice for thousands of years, certainly in the Amazon. Uh, and and we, can't just, uh, we can't just dismiss all that as primitive mumbo jumbo and, and superstition. We have, to, we have to get to grips with that on its, on its own terms.
8: I think that there's a, a growing number of people who, who feel this uh, desire to uh, get back in touch with nature, with plants, with animals, and who know that uh, through the shamanic path there is a way of doing this, and that actually these, uh, these tools, these psychoactive tools for plants like uh, ayahuasca is a very uh, direct way of doing this. Now, it may not be everybody's cup of tea, and I think a lot of people are uh, uh, actually with reason afraid of it,
13: think like a lot of people in my generation, I first heard about DMT through Terence McKenna. and It was a very funny way to uh, become aware of such a powerful and interesting uh, and anthropologically rich uh, topic as a, a compound like DMT because it really became more, it was almost more of a concept than, than something that people were necessarily taking. The DMT flash makes it clear that uh, disembodied consciousness
16: is a possibility. I think that the whole tension of history
3: and the tension of life seems to be about the shedding of the body. Terence was uh, very, he was a good promoter, basically he said it's, it's the ultimate metaphysical reality pill and even though it's not a pill, but uh, I thought that was a pretty good characterization after I took it. It seemed to be uh, of a different order than LSD and mescaline and some of the other things that were around. DMT really did seem to be a, uh, a whole other level of experience.
2: I ask that you suspend any opinions, either negative or positive, about these compounds. Whatever you believe their value to be, they continue to have profound effects wherever we find their use, whether it's contemporary Western culture or in the Amazon rainforest.
8: It was in the 50s that the ayahuasca churches started come, going public. You know, that from there was a kind of transition from the in, indigenous indians in south america to, to the mestizo people in the cities and then these churches you know the Santo Dami church and then the udv church a little later started doing ceremonies that would made the ayahuasca accessible not just to indians but to urban people in the big cities in brazil who are as far from the shamans as we are in the
6: early 1990s the udv established a branch uh, of their church in the United States. In the late 90s the the US uh, Customs Department along with the DEA intercepted a shipment of ayahuasca. The church um, uh, protested the government action. They contended that it violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the case was heard in the US Supreme Court and in February 2006 their decision was announced and it was a unanimous decision uh, on the side of the UDV.
8: Why is it that in the entire western world these substances that have been found to be so interesting by uh, hundreds of cultures for thousands of years are prohibited? How did these cultures that consider themselves to be enlightened, democratic and scientific get to declaring plants illegal. It can seem weird, but there's clearly something deep and revealing about the nature of these societies.
5: Our society values alert, problem-solving consciousness, and it devalues all other states of consciousness. Any kind of consciousness that is not related to the production or consumption of material goods is stigmatized in our society today. Of course, we accept drunkenness. We allow people some brief respite from the material grind. A society that subscribes to that model is a society that is going to condemn the states of consciousness that have nothing to do with the alert problem-solving mentality. And if you go back to the 1960s, when there was you know, a tremendous upsurge of exploration of psychedelics, I would say that the huge backlash that that followed that had to do with a fear on the part of the powers that be that if enough people went into those realms and those experiences the very fabric of the society we have today would be picked apart and most importantly those in power at the top would not be in power at the top anymore
11: there was an optimism that was was ungrounded you know that the vietnam was happening that all this real stuff was going on and that the psychedelic movement wasn't really addressing that in a real way and that timothy and that that bunch sold us a false uh, a bill of goods that didn't really work
8: so we are now whether we like it or not in the psychochemical age in the future it's not going to be what book you read it's going to be what chemicals do you use to open or close your consciousness. Chemicals can help us learn faster, chemicals
9: can help us expand or contract our consciousness.
17: The atmosphere in the 1960s was, we are doing research here, we are dedicating our lives to trying just about everything on the planet, so we would try it. Then we would talk about it. Then we would evaluate it. We regarded ourselves more or less as spiritual pioneers.
18: I mean, the way I look at the '60s, you can see it as a um, kind of failed attempt at a, at a mass cultural voyage of initiation. You know, so people would would you know. Tried to go out into these other realities, but they didn't have a basis for it. There there weren't uh, wisdom traditions and elders, there weren't like connections of shamanic lineages. So people would go out and they would kind of like smash apart. Timothy Leary really so discredited a scientific approach to studying this because he, he started off doing interesting research and then. Got into uh, advocating use in a way that was incredibly threatening. Culturally, we reacted, and um, and politically, uh, it became impossible to do this uh, sort of research. Funding agencies didn't make resources available. Regulatory agencies increased the uh, practical hurdles for initiating this kind of research, and I think people who had interest in research of this type largely um, were discredited because of their interest in the research social political scientific issues that came together pushed these drugs out of the scientific marketplace
10: The public opinion, in many cases, had become that psychedelic research was dangerous. Uh, The lay public was uninformed about the true nature of these compounds and what their importance may be in the understanding of perception itself.
4: One of the tragedies to me is that the clinical research on these substances pretty much stopped around 1970. And for me, it's especially tragic because I I really believe that these substances played a major role in the development of our philosophy and thinking throughout the world. What a lot of people don't realize is that psychiatry up until the 50s, the field in general had no concept that neurochemistry played any role in emotion or behavior, which today seems really bizarre. And the discovery of LSD and its potent effects on, on the human psyche occurred almost contemporaneously with the discovery of serotonin as a molecule in the brain. And it was really when people looked at the structure of serotonin and compared it with LSD that they really began to think, you know, maybe neurochemistry plays a role in brain chemistry and and behavioral states. If LSD had not been discovered, I doubt we would have had any of the drugs we have, at least not as quickly as we do for treating depression
9: and so forth. Once these drugs uh, became abused and uh, scandalized, um, psychiatry had to really work hard, um, you know, to distance themselves from any valid scientific, you know, scientifically meritorious relationship with psychedelics. Being a psychiatrist and saying you want to learn or study about psychedelics, it's, you know, it's not that well received, and, uh, I made one mention one time and was discouraged from really bringing it up again
18: for actually a number of years. For cultural reasons, the whole class of compounds got pulled off the the clinical bench, and no research has gone on for 40 years. So, scientifically, I, uh, I can't imagine a more exciting area to be pursuing.
2: How does one go about studying these plants and compounds? plants and compounds which produce unimaginable experiences and appear to shed light on some of humanity's greatest mysteries. In order to answer that question, Dr. Strassman conducted the first human psychedelic
9: research in a generation. One of the things that I had established early on was being able to discriminate between studies in the scientific realm and recreational use. But in the early 1980s I reviewed all of that literature and could pretty well establish on that if people were really carefully screened and supervised and then followed up that the incidence of adverse reactions to LSD and related psychedelic drugs was extremely low. The drug or the compound or the chemical that seemed like the best candidate to sort of reopen um, the US uh, front on psychedelic research would be DMT.
4: It was really, I mean, it was exciting for me because I thought this is the first study in a generation. And not only that, despite the fact that DMT had been used safely in earlier studies and it was this natural component of the brain, DMT is one of the most profound and potent psychedelics known. So it wasn't just an initiation of clinical research. It was a reinitiation of clinical search with an extremely potent drug. I was of the strong opinion uh, that you could do these studies and, and Rick agreed. So we had a number of discussions and at some point the discussion came up, you know, Dave, what if I do all this paperwork and spend all this time and get to the end of things and I'm ready to go and I can't get the DMT. And that was a real possibility because DMT, clinical grade DMT, wasn't a chemical you could just buy off the shelf somewhere. And I told Rick, if you get to that point and no one will make it, then I'll do it. And ultimately Rick got to that point
9: and I made it. The design of the study was fairly straightforward. Give people DMT and measure as many variables as possible. I I had to sort of anticipate a lot of objections that would come my way uh, from the regulatory agencies that oversee this kind of research. So at that point began a two-year process of dealing with um, not that many regulatory agencies, but uh, fairly monolithic ones. One sort of a you know sidelight of the protocol was the involvement of a psychiatrist from UCLA named um, Daniel Friedman. Um, he was a, kind of one of the grand old men of American psychiatry, and actually he was one of the people who in the 50s and 60s got their start with psychedelic research. And the main thing that
4: uh, Danny Friedman uh, told Rick, told us, was don't even get close to psychotherapy. Forget about treating mental illness or alcoholism or anything. Forget that. That's where all the hysteria is. That's where all the fears get up. You're a scientist, Rick. Approach it as a scientist. Do basic, simple measurements. Look at heart rate, cardiovascular parameters. You won't get in trouble doing that. You can get it funded. And it's solid science. Rick did what he said, but then he still was able to get these, you know, accounts of what happened. And that wasn't in the plan. That wasn't really what was proposed in the studies that were funded, and that wasn't what uh, Danny talked about. But those were the spin-off that that really made it interesting.
17: Rick Strassman was advertising in some magazine somewhere about wanting volunteers for a, particular study in um, in a psychotropic and I didn't really know what, I didn't know DMT from STP at that time. And I remember reading that and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is bad. I better get involved in this and, and make sure that, uh, you know, somebody doesn't get hurt and, and that at least, you know, there'd be some sensitivity towards what this stuff is really about.
7: I met Rick's research nurse at a a party and she heard me talking about that I had used um, peyote ceremonially and she took me aside and said uh, there's something that you might be interested in we're looking for subjects volunteer subjects for uh, some unusual research I was a little concerned that the the study participants might be a
19: little um, obnoxious I, I, maybe that's not the right word, but, you know, people that were just seeking to do a lot of drugs and, uh, they were, um, very professional people, um, there were varying degrees as to how much, um, hallucinogen use they had, um, been through, it seemed like. There were some people that it fe- felt like they had made it their, kind of their life mission to experience every kind of substance out there, and then other people who, um, I think were just interesting for their own, interested for their own personal growth and, um, Yeah, our curiosity.
7: Once we actually got into the preparation for the actual trips, Rick asked me uh, about roller coasters. Do you like roller coasters? You know, the sensation of going up really high and then slamming back down towards Earth. And I said, no, I hate them. They're horrible. And he said, not good. I just wanted to go with the experience, learn as much as I could, absorb as much as I could, and be humble to it.
16: The idea of legally sanctioned psychedelics was just very compelling. Plus, you're in a hospital. So should you get that uncomfortable experience that you're dying, you're with doctors in a very safe environment from that point of view.
9: I mean, this was really very cutting edge, very out there, very, it was high risk. And uh, people knew what they were getting into, and they wanted to have the extra reassurance. And I was glad, actually to have a crash cart in the room and a team, you know, in the hospital to respond to any emergencies.
7: You're in this hospital room and there's all the sounds and the smells and just the the prior experiences of being in the hospital. You know, all these negative things come back. So there was the 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 whole environment to be overcome because little did I know that it didn't matter where I was I wasn't gonna be in my body I was gonna be out in the universe and it didn't matter where you launched from it could be a hospital room it could be the jungle in the Amazon it didn't matter where you were because you weren't gonna stay there
17: set and setting is so important it's even more important than the substance more important than the substance set and setting is everything. Now what is the set and setting when you are blindfolded? The set and setting is not what you're seeing, you're not seeing anything. The set and setting is your internal self. The things that you have learned, the capacities that you have achieved, the conditions of your own psyche and psychology, these are your set and setting.
12: It's the medicine combined with or interacting with the set and setting that creates an effect of safety, of trust, of comfort, and of resourcefulness that makes it possible for you to take some big leaps and receive some big gifts. And if that's not there, you just get terrified.
19: So I, was, I didn't really have physical fears so much that they would die or have a stroke. Um, I did have some fears about people's mental health, you know, um, especially with some of the higher doses. We gave one gentleman who had had a lot of experience with the drug one dose and he didn't think it it took him far enough. So then we gave him a higher dose and uh, he was gone. He was really gone. It, It reminded me of something from the exorcist. I mean, he just, just, boom! sat bolt up in the bed, and his eyes opened up, and they were completely dilated and black. And I almost thought he was going to turn his head completely around. And I remember looking at Rick, and Rick looked at me, and I thought, oh my god, he's gone. I hope he comes back. And he did.
14: The countdown was like, you know, counting down for your, preparing for your death, like waiting to surrender. And you'd feel the coldness. And it, the coldness just going through your veins. And it's really indescribable. It's hard to, you know, it's like ice going through your veins. And the next thing that would happen, besides my racing heart, is this burning sensation would happen on the back of my neck. I mean, this was reliable, this is like clockwork. This happened every time that you, that you shot me up with DMT. And Then there'd be a hum, and the hum would get louder and louder, and to the point where it broke apart everything that I was or knew. It was just this, it just got louder and louder until you just had to surrender to the sound. And then you were there.
1: I would get a warm, full feeling, a golden feeling in my chest before it went to my head. I'd feel this warm rod about an inch and a half in diameter start growing up inside my central channel. It would come up and sort of slow warm up my chest, go up through my head, and slow down and put tremendous pressure in my sinuses behind my eyes, and slow down, start to grow and the skin behind my forehead, about one inch, behind my hairline. And when it had, I was afraid it was gonna pop my skin a few times, because it was a very physical feeling. About an inch and a half, two inches above my skull, when it popped through there, then the psychedelic trip would start. I thought I died. I saw the white clouds, uh, you know, the um, Renaissance white fluffy clouds with the gods and the angels and all that stuff is what I saw. I thought I was dying and going out, but I did take a quick look at Cindy and a quick look at Rick because I had my eyes open and they were both there watching, looking very calm and I go, that's really good news, my body looks fine.
16: So I didn't know whether it was my birth I was re-experiencing, my death, which was yet to come because I, I know that Time crumbles, the linearity of time is totally meaningless in these states. You are at the godhead, the point where all time folds in on itself.
17: More and more layers of my humanity start peeling off. Finally, the last You know, the almost the last layer, and I can't even describe what it is, but you have at some reaches way in there, there is like the last layer of that which you which defines you as a human being, and it goes
7: you are no longer a human being. In fact, you're no longer anything you can identify. There is no concept of time. It was so disorienting. I was so terrified. I have never in my entire life been so terrified to be blasted out of my body, to leave my body behind, to be going at warp speed backwards through my own DNA, out the other end into the universe.
1: And so I went right into this white light. As soon as I went into it, I lost any sense of being different, any sense of what I was doing, past, any sense of future. Uh, It was absolutely blissful and euphoric. And I just felt like it wasn't I. I was everything. I was the light. There was no sense of separation, no shadows, no differences, no past, no future. It was all present and white, the yellow light. Then I felt myself falling out of this light, and as I fell out of it, I could feel the light was like a glow, like the sun with flames coming out and lapping out, and I could already start to feel this tremendous separation.
7: I reached across and it was suddenly I'm in the universe, in this huge void with these beings on the other side, and I put out my hands and this incredible rainbow of pink light went, between me and these entities. And I was trying to make it be like a white light, but it was this incredible pink light, this energy of love that we, this capacity of love that we as human beings have that I was trying to just send to them.
17: This meteor-like trip through, through the infinite space of the interior consciousness, is up pops the picture puzzle pattern door and i'm now whizzing through this sucker like if it was nothing it just i'm flying through it but now i know what the picture puzzle pattern door is the picture puzzle pattern door is the farthest reaches of your humanity this is the doorway into the what defines you as a human being when you go past that You stop being human to a degree. And the further you get past this point, the further away you go from being a human being. But right here, this picture-puzzle-pattern door is everything, it's everything. It's what defines you as a human being. This is your, this picture-puzzle-pattern door is you.
16: This is like the actual core of where all of reality is emanating from. This is where meaning comes from. Symbols were pouring out. They were intertwined. Every symbol or and letter and in every language was pouring out of this point.
7: And I looked around at my environment and I was trying to absorb everything to understand, but there were all of these machines or structures or things that, that I had never seen before, that I had no idea what they were. I was like a caveman in a computer lab. I didn't have any idea, but I knew in my intellectual awareness that this was a very advanced civilization or life forms or, or whatever they were. They, they were so far advanced from, from what we know here on Earth
16: There's one state of, and I call it the the hobby horses, and they're interlocking, reticulating, uh, vibrating hobby horses. And I use that, that's what they seem like to me. They interlock and they form a, a visual pattern that seems infinite in scape. And then you're on the inside, outside, inside, every side, and so, It's less possible to use, um, you know, words sort of
14: start to escape you. The texture of the space was very much like an animated Mexican tile. It seemed to be hyper vivid in color, in a technicolor sense, but also very clay-like in earth. You know, like with an earthen pointing towards earth, but not really being on earth.
12: And there was no eye, there was just a sense of a witness being suspended in this incredible vaulted space, like a cathedral made uh, out of a stained glass of all imaginable colors. Unbelievable brilliance and saturation of color. Just this amazing pattern in this dome, this gigantic dome, it, was, it felt like, you know, the size of the, the, of a small planet. And there were these winged, Beings. I don't remember exactly what they looked, but they were like angels, something like angels, that were majestically kind of flying through the space. But there was something about the quality of how they were flying that was unique. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like, I don't know, the sense of uh, another realm that was there. My sense was, at, at some point, there was this implicit sense, this is the divine realm this is the divine realm. And it was not like a thought, but it was like this implicit
7: kind of grokking recognition. It was all very, very impersonal until I got to the space where I realized that I was in the area where souls await rebirth. And I was there and I had been there so many times before, I recognized it, and this incredible transcendent peace came over me. I have never in my life ever felt such peace. Everything was stripped away. Every hope, every fear, every attachment to the material world was completely stripped out of me. I was free to just be the essence of a soul.
12: After the medicine wore off, uh, there is that familiar sensation of kind of coming back into the body. And I do remember that. That was part of almost all of those experiences of kind of coalescing back into sensory awareness and a sense of having a body and of that becoming a little more substantial. And then say, oh yeah, here I am. And I live in a body and I'm okay.
17: So Laura removes the eye shades and I ask, not really with my eyes open quite yet, I ask, how long was I gone? Because I needed to know. And Rick chimes in like 15 minutes. For a moment, I'm shocked. I'm like, you know, the mind has to try to catch up because now the whole cognitive dissonance of the experience has to has to catch up, I was gone for 15 minutes, a thousand years of experience in 15 minutes. Well to say the least it it was profound, It, it was,
19: it was profound i mean it's it's amazing i mean it 's amazing what a human being can experience um, in a hospital bed. I mean, they can experience almost the whole universe, you know life, death, everything in between.
16: This is not some recreational thing, and i don 't believe anybody should enter this lightly. It is life transformative. It will perhaps shake you enough to realize you know, that you need to be awake to the fact that you don't know, and that is the beginning of starting to know.
7: What we see here is such a tiny part of what is real. I get really frustrated because, of course, there's no way to prove that where I went was deep space, that I encountered, you know, other entities other life forms that exist in this universe at some point maybe our civilization will become advanced enough and we will throw off these anchors of impossible thought that these things are impossible that it's it's not you know that there everything that exists exists where we can see it
9: I wrapped up the studies in 95 and uh, really just had to take a break for a couple of years I was aware of a growing sense of discomfort uh, with what I was doing, because I just couldn't explain it. And uh, it seemed to me if I couldn't model and explain what was going on that I was doing and just, uh, you know, bringing people to the edge of these kinds of experiences, it seemed like I ought to, Um, that it was a little irresponsible to be sort of pushing people off the cliff like that without really knowing exactly what it was and accepting and understanding and feeling comfortable with with that model. And, um, you know, I think what began dawning on me after a while once I stopped the study was that I was really dealing with a spiritual phenomenon.
2: What do these experiences say about the nature of reality, the nature of our minds, or the function of our brain that we can so quickly shift into these alternate realities. Let's take a step back and consider how these experiences inform us about ourselves, our consciousness, and the symbiosis of the two.
9: It started seeming to me that, was, that what was happening with DMT, uh, particularly with respect to uh, some of these reports of entering parallel or alternate or freestanding parallel sorts of realms of existences. That, that, indeed, was what their consciousness was doing. The chemistry of their brain, which is the organ of consciousness, was being changed by DMT in such a way that they could then receive information that we weren't able to receive normally.
5: Yes, there's the experiences from DMT and ayahuasca, and they have their, their function. But if we'll also look at what it enables us to see It just
3: rips that filtering mechanism away for a few minutes. And for a few minutes, you're immersed in sort of this raw data sphere of input, of sensory input, of memories, of associations. I mean, it seems like uh, the brain builds reality out of these things, what you're experiencing, what you have experienced, and how you associate and synthesize these things together to tell yourself a story, essentially, about what's going on, where you are in space
11: and time. It's the brain that helps us to process all this information and to create for us a rendition of what our world is all about. But we're trapped within that brain. However, in spiritual experiences where people feel that they get beyond the self, In certain types of psychedelic experiences where you have incredible sensory and other types of phenomena, uh, people really feel like they are able to kind of get outside of their brain. We have to take a very big look at what is going on within them when they have the experience and try to understand how it happens physiologically and try to make sense of it from the subjective perspective as well as from the objective perspective. I don't think you can just say, let's just explain it away on the basis of science. Perhaps the uniqueness of the human creature is that we live in both realms.
5: We have, we have the ability for, for spiritual experience and we have the ability for, for physical experience. The agenda of, of the spirit world, if there, if there is, is an agenda, uh, is to allow us to experience our full potential and to deliver our full potential. And maybe the choices that we are making. Right now, as a, as a civilization and a society, we bound far beyond ourselves.
3: And, uh, I think DMT is a forcible reminder that there's a lot more about reality, the universe, ourselves, the biosphere, whatever that we uh, there's a lot more to it than we imagine.
0: I hope this show has given you a different perspective on ayahuasca and different uh, psychotropics and uh, answered many of your questions. Until next week, this is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope Radio.